The Jet Set Breakfast with Michelle Constant. 20 to 9. We have Abdullah Virache, the author on the line. He has written the book Disruption Amplified, Reset, Rewire, Reimagine Everything. And it focuses on the idea that indeed with COVID-19 we have seen the ultimate disruptor play its hand. His book talks about how we need to reimagine the world, a world which will continue to be impacted by the long tail of the pandemic for many years and many lifetimes to come. Abdullah, thank you so much for joining us. I have to say a fabulous read and uh, a very easy read as well. So thank you for that. Thank you very much, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, yeah, try to make the book as inclusive and as accessible as possible. Uh, um, so That's what's nailed it for me. So when we talk about these things like disruption and when we talk about reimagining the world, one often wants to put an academic hat on. And yet, in many ways, what you've done is you've given us the opportunity to think about how our world could be changed. I mean, you look at things like dating, you look at things like the millennials, how do we find a new partner in this crazy world that we've moved into? Was that really part of the game when you wrote this? You thought, how am I going to make the man on the street, you, me, everyone, perhaps not you, but more me and everyone else, um, think about uh, the world that we are now in? Yeah, 100%. You know, Michelle, I often use this analogy that uh, what we see in terms of disruption has been there before COVID. I think what COVID has done, uh, really, to use an analogy, it's put nitrous in a car. It's uh, accelerated the speed of change, and, mm. and it's really cognitively rewired our expectations in terms of how we see and understand the world. Uh, it's given us a different perspective in terms of how we use technology to be able to work from home. It's given us the chance to be able to explore how do we buy digitally online, uh, and then also it's given us a chance to be able to sit back and reflect about some of the very deeper systemic challenges we have in our world. So I've, I've spent a lot of time with companies in the last six months, and many people I speak to say, Abdullah, when are we getting back to the new normal? And I sure. laugh and I say, you know, I think that that term by itself is, is a misnomer. I don't think where we came from ever was normal to start with, Michelle. I think, you know, the type of world we lived in where Billions of people got onto the road at the same time, gridlocked traffic and created massive challenges in terms of productivity was never normal. Uh, Living in a society where we've got massive income inequality is never normal. And so perhaps to use your analogy in the beginning, this gives us a chance to reimagine the world we want to live in. You know, you use the book um, to describe the big shifts, the macro shifts, and then you go into the impact of of COVID on society, as I mentioned earlier, specifically in the various sectors and focusing on different scenarios. What struck me in the macro shifts, the big shifts in that particular chapter was the idea of the geopolitics, the global village that no longer exists, and the impact of what you call network effects. Also, the idea of nationalization and the growth of what you call regional alignments, I suppose, regionalism. Tell us a bit about that. Sure. So I think, uh, you know, we often uh, resign network effects to the issue of the digital economy, this ability to be able to, as we see like Amazon and Alibaba to talk about network effects. But network effects, you know, can be translated into our daily reality. So mm-hmm. think back yourself, your listeners, myself to Jan Feb, where we thought that this was a crisis in China. 
And then in a short space of four to six weeks, it moved from a crisis in China to a global crisis. And in fact, China has come off, uh, in many cases, the lesser cases than many other countries. It gives you a sense of the interconnectedness of our world, the relationships, the interrelationships between markets and countries in terms of mobility of people, airline traffic, etc. So the one is that we much more interconnected than what we were in 1917 when everybody compares this crisis to the flu crisis in 1917. So there's a much deeper sense of globalization and interconnectedness because of air travel. The second, uh, you know, is governments have come to the realization that COVID has opened up a massive and a gaping hole in their fiscus, in that many of them have a massive reduction in terms of tax collection, businesses who pay less taxes, individuals who've lost their jobs who won't pay taxes, and then a massive increase up north in terms of tax expenditure. So uh, increases in terms of PPE equipment, increases in terms of stimulus, and that results in obviously a challenge uh, in terms of the money available for government to intervene. And so one of the arguments I make to your point is we're going to start to see increased nationalism where countries start to protect their local economies, favor local jobs, favor local manufacturing. And so that will, that's one of the uh, you know, scenarios that I think will play out. The second is that what COVID has opened up is perhaps some of the deeper fault lines in terms of the relationship between countries. And next week's going to be particularly interesting mm. as the U.S. goes Absolutely. on an election. It might change the trajectory of relationships globally, I think. So, you know, um, Abdullah, one of the things that you mentioned, which left me freaking cold, I have to say, was um, you, you, you quoted um, Yuval Noah Harari. He, of course, wrote that book, Sapiens Homo Deus, which I haven't read, but I've heard such good things about. But how he also talks to the idea of how countries will become, if we look at big macro shifts, countries will serve as large scale social experiments and guinea pigs. And I suppose if we look at COVID-19, even in the health sector, that's what's about to happen. I mean, we're going to see countries um, testing out COVID-19 vaccines as, as almost as guinea pigs. You and me are going to be the guinea pigs and we're going to have to decide, am I going to take the vaccine or am I not? I mean, of course, I'm going to be, yes, we have to take the vaccine no matter what. But it, it yep. does raise, like, as I said, left me feeling quite ugh, cold. <laughs> yeah, on a cold uh, on a cold morning oh, today, yeah, exactly. it does make me feel cold <laughs> as well, right? I think I think uh, Michelle, what, what has actually happened, uh, and your point is spot on, right? Uh, is what COVID has opened up is the acceleration of how governments and perhaps even companies start to deeply intervene. And what we find is that uh, this happens, you know, on the back of arguing that it's in the interest of a crisis, but it often permeates much more longer term because you start to realize the power of, of that data, of that information, of that ability to start to think about how do we get society around a certain type of context, the so example of, of the vaccine. But what, I, what we've seen even deeper is how data has been used to be able to inform patterns of behavior. So today yeah. we can geolocate anybody uh, even in a 500 square meter radius. So think of just the ability to find your phone and couple that now with big data, where you're able to say within the one square kilometer of this area of Lanasia, these are the major healthcare conditions. This is the type of level of transmission. Uh, this is the type of movement and mobility. And one of the concerns around uh, the careful management of data is how do we do it in a careful way that we don't infringe of rights, that we don't start to yes. get into a space where, uh, you know, it's used for the wrong reasons. And so that's the one fear and concern that has come about as a result of this. The second is, uh, you know, this uh, term of, of guinea pigs, this experimentation. This has been a mass experiment, even for managers who never thought in their life they'll allow people to work for half a day from home. 
They've had to resign that I've got to let somebody work for six months from home. It's been an yeah. experiment of epic proportions. And the difficulty is once we adopt to a new way, it's often difficult to go back. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt I'm never going to go back into an office. That's for sure. <laughs> so, Abdullah, you know, you take it into such interesting spaces, into diverse sectors, as I mentioned earlier. And yet when you look at the uh, book, one of the things that seems to thread its way through, if we look at the future of the social context, the idea that we will go out less frequently. You've just mentioned that now. The loss of human touch and interaction Um And I suppose we can look at property, we can look at learning and education, we can look at the millennials, we can look at dating. But what you are talking about, or the gig economy, is how do we keep humanity at the center of technology? Yeah, I think the future is not uh, a binary discussion between digital exactly. or human human beings. I think the conversation is much more deeper. And I think we've got a very superficial analysis that digital is the future. But the answer, as everybody has been jumping on board, is the fourth industrial revolution. I think we've got to step back and understand what do we do as businesses, as organizations, as individuals. We're not creating machines for other machines. We're creating machines for human beings. And so I think the most mm-hmm. successful companies, individuals, uh, and even Countries will be those who can get the balance, the interplay between the digital and the human touch. Because yeah. uh, the skills that are going to become so much more valuable in the next five to ten years are those skills that can't be digitized or automated. So skills like curiosity, skills like empathy, skills mm-hmm. like the ability to understand uh, what we've spoken about today, the global political context. And unfortunately, we don't place too much of an emphasis in the education system on empathy, on curiosity, yeah. on innovation. And those are the skills that are going to become the most valuable into the future. I think we've spoken about disruption at a country and a company level. I think what COVID has really taught me is that no president, no prime minister, no CEO, no executive, no business school professor has the answers. It gives us a chance to get new skills. And for me, the most important skill, I think, is the ability to constantly learn. And learning doesn't only take place in formal institutions or on the computer Learning takes place outside. I mean, how do mm. I go out today on a Sunday and explore a new part of Gauteng or Cape Town or Nelspruit, wherever I live? How do I speak to people who are different to me? How yeah. do I explore parts of me that make me uncomfortable? Because I don't learn in areas where I'm comfortable, but areas where I'm uncomfortable. And so this mm. is really the challenge for us. How do we get that human touch more amplified? Because I think that's going to be a critical skill into the future. I did love your uh, section around lifelong learning. It made me feel very excited, given the fact that I've also gone back to school. But yeah. I was like, <laughs> I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> I mean, but, but, but you talk about those skills, curiosity, empathy, starting to walk in other people's shoes. Let's look at what that's about. And you touch on that um, in the uh, areas around family and dating. And one of the areas that you focus on is the concept of the millennial. And you, you raise something very interesting, is that the millennials have a certain kind of personality which has been framed and built by the events that have taken place uh, over the years that they've grown up. And one of the concerns you raise is that COVID-19 and what has happened because of its impact on many young millennials may mean that they don't want to shift and change and move forward with a curious mind. Tell us a bit about that. 
Yeah, so I, firstly, I'm very happy that you term millennials as young because I just made the cut to be a millennial. But <laughs> millennials, uh, people between the ages of 26 and 40. Exactly, and, uh, it's not millennials, so young, pal. <laughs> uh, <have laughs> two massive impacts in their career, uh, to your point, Michelle. Firstly, yeah. in 2007-8, early stages of their career, I remember I just started my job uh, in a law firm and, uh, co- uh, and GFC hit the global financial crisis. Many couldn't find jobs. Many who had their first job lost those jobs. Many who started saving lost many of their savings and we had a long lag effect you used the word long tail we had the long tail of the GFC between 2007 to 10 so millennials had an impact you just get out of your studying or you just start your career or you've just had your first job and you've been affected now 12 years later you're in mid-career and we haven't seen a double wham in a history where uh, a generation of people second time around get affected again. So mid-career, we've seen the sectors that have had the highest levels of unemployment and people losing their jobs are actually actually sectors dominated by people between the ages of 26 and 42. And so millennials have been affected the second time. And my argument is, uh, you know, that's shows in how we argue that we are the products of our time and we mm. are impacted by the events of our time. And so millennials, I'm going to argue, when you've had in 12 years two or three massive impacts like this, you come back with a different view of how you assess risk, how you look at the world, how you make big ticket purchases. Uh, And I think that's going to affect them uh, longer term. In fact, let me say it's going to affect us longer term. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to affect all of us, whether you're a millennial or a perennial or whatever the case may be. Abdullah... In closing, you know, at the end of the book, and and I really liked this, I thought, you know, often we get these, um, you know, we get books which leave you feeling positively knackered. And yet you inspire, you take energy, and what you do is you offer some great tips. I mean, one of your takeaways, a long, hard look at privilege, some great takeaways. Maybe just give us some insights into that just so that we end on an up. Sure. I think, I think it's a beautiful question, Michelle. I think two or three things. You know, when we got locked down on the 27th of March, uh, I had 11 trips internationally that was in my diary for the year ahead, and I had nine of them cancelled in two weeks. Uh, you know, it was quite a hard, abrupt stop in terms of my international travel. And so, as with everybody, you know, we spent some time relaxing, some time playing board games, some time uh, writing. <laughs> yes. And then I said to myself, Abdullah, this is not going to happen for the next six to 12 months. Yeah. And so I took two hours every day and started writing. And for me, it's just how do you expend your energy? So that's one of the things I speak about is try and see how you spend your energy and your time and your contribution. I think the second one is that uh, we live in an emerging market economy and a continent which is ripe for potential and opportunity. And COVID has given us a chance, as I titled the book, to reset and to rewire. And we need thinkers. We need people who come with new ideas, who solve for problems on the ground. And when I drive around beyond the headlines, beyond what I read in the newspaper, I often see magic in this country of ours. And for me, it's how do you take the ingredients of that pockets of magic and how do we amplify it so that Mm. we can really get uh, a new way of understanding our society in the next five to ten years. And for that, in my honest view, technology will help us, but we need human beings who are able to think, to reflect, and to be a lot more empathetic. Abdullah, I want to say thank you so much. I was inspired by reading this book. And as I say, it is not a challenging book to read. It's not an academic book. It's about you and me and how we engage with the world as we move forward. So thank you very, very much for that. Thanks, Michelle. Appreciate your time, as always. That's Abdullah Vrachia. He's the author of the book, Disruption Amplified, Reset, Rewire, Reimagine, 
everything. It is published by TMP and Tracy McDonald Publishers, and you can get it at any one of the booksellers, whether it's exclusives or your local bookseller. Go and look for it. It is a great read, and at times it's a funny read as well.